Hello friends at welcome sa isa na namang episode ng Pinoy Passion Podcast at para sa episode na ito, ang kausap natin ay si Mr. Derek Manuel, isang Amerikano na may pusong Pinoy. Nandito na siya sa Pilipinas noong 2012 pa and noong 2015, nagsimula siyang magbenta ng mga knives and knife making supplies, prepping supplies, and EDC supplies or everyday carry supplies, survival supplies. Etc. Etc. Sa kaniyang shop na Derek's Classic Blade Exchange sa Facebook. Matatagpuan ng kaniyang shop sa Iloilo, pero he ships nationwide. In this episode, we talked about how he started his passion with knives. We talked to him about his love for knives. We asked him about some tips on how to maintain knives and restore knives or take care of older knives. So without further ado, let's uh, listen to this episode of Pinoy Passion Podcast featuring Mr. Derek Manuel. The first time I contacted Derek, I was planning of uh, talking to Derek about vintage uh, knives, vintage folders because Derek is the person that I go to when I have a question regarding vintage folders, vintage knives, or anything aged and western. How did you start? Would you consider yourself a collector? I'm a mix because it is about use as much as it is about the looks or the quality or any of the other factors. There's definitely knives that I buy purely for collection only um, because they're just either over the top or... Um, I don't want to scratch them because they're so beautiful. They're pieces of art. But I, I really got started. Um, I grew up on a farm back home in Texas. And uh, so we always had a pocket knife in our, around us or with us. And we always had an axe and a machete in the truck and on the tractors. So it was more of a matter of this is the way I grew up. Of course, as I got older and got more of a budget, started looking into deeper, different pieces then the collecting the collecting bug really hit and that really started with the swiss army knives it hasn't been limited to that this is the the pocket knife collection when you were growing up was there a point or a milestone that you graduated from utilitarian knives and going into the nicer collectible knives and the uh, custom knives or what what was your uh, entry point or gate gateway it probably started with custom swiss army knives and collectible mm -hmm. swiss army knives um victor Knox did a bunch of runs back in 2010 2013 or so where they released uh, models that they only produced 50 of them at a time mm -hmm. uh, some of them were only produced to eight worldwide so that that kind of kicked it off and it's a slippery slope you you tell yourself oh i'll never spend five thousand pesos on a knife that's too much money saying you know you start pushing three thousand four thousand pesos a knife and and it, it just grows from there it gets worse and worse what's the worst oh shit i i, I don't want to get into that <laughs> my wife will probably watch this video and kill me a lot of people will sometimes get uh, confused by that uh, one of the things I love collecting is uh, oversized knives. Yeah. At this point, Derek whips out a large folding knife. It's about 
an arm, a forearm length. Not forearms, just the length of my forearm. So maybe a one foot. So this is uh, just an old uh, stockman. But whenever it's opened up, you're looking at uh, almost a foot long total size. That's a commercial run so or? Most of these large knives are made in Pakistan. Made in what, sorry? Pakistan. Oh, okay. So they're not exactly high-end collectible knives. They're just really interesting to me. Novelty knives. Absolutely. And for this part, he shows us an older Swiss Army knife that's not really what uh, the modern Swiss Army knives look like. Uh, but this one was made uh, specifically for, for the Swiss Army. It still carries the, the government stamp on it. And uh, this particular model is back before they changed the can opener style and they still use the lobster claw and then the inline reamer. Uh, so these are a little bit different than what you'll see on the current production stuff besides just the size and the shape of it. A few months ago, a friend gave me a vintage knife. Um, it was rusted and it doesn't have markings on it except for the letters USA on the shield on it. And Derek was one of the persons that I messaged and asked uh, opinions about it. Earlier you had uh, mentioned a knife with no markings on it. Yeah, it says USA at the shield. Those were a lot of times um, made by uh, Schrade or Imperial back before they joined up or another brand called Sword Brand, which is another sub company. The problem with them is that there's no real way to lock down who actually made it. And you actually have to start searching through product books specifically to see which company offered which, what type of mm -hmm. cover on it or how their reamer was made. And even then, that can get super confusing and super time-consuming. You really almost have to have a, a library of the old product catalogs. Some of the ones we keep around is like for catalogist cutlery, we have a, here in the house, we have Keen Cutter. But at the shop, we have a lot of old Remington books and a bunch of those. So we can actually go through all of their product line from the 1800s all the way up to the 1960s or so. But needless to say, going through a 300-page book takes time and then having to go through 10 of them to go through every factory, it can really be a long process. So it becomes really, really difficult. Derek, on top of your head, uh, what are the better brands from before? Just like anything, we kind of have to talk about budget mm -hmm. because there's going to be a wild variety. Some of the Cataraugus knives run over 50,000 pesos. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so obviously Cataraugus is one of the top companies, but not everybody has 50,000 to drop on an old pocket knife, especially considering the steel that they used back then isn't as good as the steel that we have today, thanks to technology. You know, we, we have a much better steel selection today. Mm -hmm. And our heat treatment services are way better than they ever were in the past. So if, if we break it down, if you're really looking for something affordable, Camillus is always a great brand to look at. Mm -hmm. They're not overly expensive. They were produced in large amounts. And they don't have a huge collector market. Uh, Case was a fairly affordable knife back in the day. And still today, their new stuff's affordable. But if you really get into picking up their old stuff, again, you can spend over 50,000 pesos a knife. Same with Buck and some of the other big names like K-Bar. 
but Camillus is a great place to start. And they have a lot of really interesting stuff. If you're really into collecting, like uh, they did some ribbons for their dealers a few years back to, to celebrate their 100th anniversary. Um, and they did some shooting marbles and some other stuff like that. So if you're really into collecting one brand, Camillus is a great place to start mm-hmm. because there's a lot of material out there for them. Uh, another great option is the Schrade Imperial brand back before they were bought by uh, Taylor Holdings out of China. Uh, very affordable knives. Sometimes you can find those for like 250 pesos in America. Yeah, there's a great option right there. It's a working tool, but and it's nothing fancy, but it, it works really well. It's made from good high carbon steel. And uh, you can usually pick those up for 1,000 pesos to 500 pesos, somewhere around there. Another good one would be like Keen Cutter, um, Cataragus Western, of course, K-Bar Buck, Case Knives. Uh, if you can find old ones, Queen Cutlery is amazing, but they can be a little bit expensive. And then you've got like Canal Street Cutlery and Tidouette. And in the 1800s, there, there was literally thousands of knife makers in the United States because they were trying to separate from the English steel and trying to get away from England as much as possible. So it's really, um, there's no way to go through it all. Derek Manuel is quite knowledgeable about vintage knives and the reason for it is because he researches really thoroughly. He has a collection of uh, thick uh, books or catalogs uh, from way way before 1960s 50s 70s i don't know but during the interview he whipped out uh four or five thick books to show us and those are catalogs from decades decades ago and those information you cannot find on the internet yeah to put that in perspective this is the stack we use to plus we still have more to shop but this is the stack that we use to keep track of all the different factories just in the U.S. Um, and this covers worldwide, but most of these are U.S. companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, I don't know, 1,500 pages right here. Mm-hmm. And how often do they come out with those books? Are they still publishing those kinds of books now? There is, uh, but the guy who is, the two men who are really putting out the best information were Bernard Levine and uh, Richard Goins. Uh, Goins is most famous for his book on tang stamps. And it, it literally lays out thousands upon thousands of manufacturers and their tang stamps. And for the bigger manufacturers, he would actually put in all of their different tang stamps within the book. Mm-hmm. and what years they were produced in. So it makes it really easy if you're looking to age a certain knife to be able to flip through. And it gives you a brief history of each company, mm-hmm. uh, maybe three or four sentences. It's not much, but it gives you a place to start whenever you go to Google and start doing your deep research. Bernard Levine stopped making uh, his guide to knives back in the 90s. There is a fifth uh... edition that's out, but it's absolute junk. The printing company didn't want to actually pay him to write a new book, so they used all the scrap pieces from old books and pieced together a book and still put his name on it. Even he'll tell you, don't buy that version. It's no good. <laughs> but the information there still stands because most of the manufacturers have already stopped uh, manufacturing, so the information there is still good. That's right. And uh, the 
not only is it still good, but even the different editions will have different information because they have to be able to change it up every year and make it interesting and have people buy the same book twice, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there will be information in the first edition that there necessarily won't be in the second or third edition. So we can say that really the in, the information on the internet regarding if you're going to research on that kind of particular knife, the information on the internet is really limited. It's very hit or miss for a lot of the, especially for the older industrial knives. Mm-hmm. Um because a lot of these things fell out, uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people who were using them on a daily basis are gone uh, because most of those guys were our grandfathers or even our great-grandfathers in mm-hmm. some cases. So it, it can be really difficult on the Internet. It's always a good place to start mm-hmm. because there is so much information out there. But if you have uh, some books to start with, that, that can really slim things down and make it easier for you to find the information. Uh, I mean, Blade Forums and then All About Pocket Knives is another great site with a lot of information on it, mm-hmm. especially whenever it comes to tanging stamps. Would you say that collectors here in the Philippines, uh, the community of uh, vintage collectors, uh, how big is it? Would you say... It's still pretty dang small. I was saying it's understandable uh, for people to be hesitant to get involved with it because it is a new market here in the Philippines mm-hmm. for the most part. You know, with budget being tight for everybody, especially right now, it's hard to just trust a guy who's selling you something that he's telling me the truth whenever you got another name brand sitting right next to it that you actually recognize that name brand. You know, so the market is still small, but it's coming around. And we've been trying to build it, but it'll just take some time is all. You're bringing in vintage, some vintage slip joints, vintage folding knives. Uh, what are your criteria of how you bring them in? Do you choose or is a bulk? Uh, thing or your favorite? Some of it we do bulk, like the, especially the Swiss Army knives. I buy by the kilo, uh, so we get them in. We have to hand inspect every one of them, disassemble them, sharpen them, clean them, go through all of that. Oh wow! Uh, which is a long, drawn-out process. Um, now the others, I, I can go ahead and buy usually in small batches of like ten or so. So I've already got a good idea of what's going to be junk and what we're going to be able to actually clean up and sell. Um, it, it can be very time consuming because we do have to go through every single knife. And I think right now we have probably 300 slip joints for sale. And that's the other issue is trying to photograph all of those slip yeah. joints and post them for sale and keep all of the pricing straight. It, it's a headache, um, but it, it's a passion. So we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to work our way through it. For the most part, though, I, I do get to kind of choose individually which ones we're going to pick up from different collectors and estate sales, and then we actually import those in. And, and we do tend to focus, we're trying to bring in uh, more of the middle budget and lower end budget, but we stay away from stainless steels because stainless steels back in the early 1900s to mid 1900s were, were really junk for the most part. So we try. If I see it rusted up, then that's the one I want to buy usually, um, which probably sounds a little bit odd, but that immediately tells me that it's a carbon steel at the very least. Mm-hmm. And then we focus on Camillus, and uh, we've got some early K-Bar and Buck knives that we focused on pretty heavy, uh, Imperial, Shrade, Hammer Brand, some of the others like that that are pretty big names. Uh, but for the most part, we're trying to stay more towards the lower end of stuff. 
until people get more accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And maybe there'll be more demand later on for higher end pieces. And most of those stuff are available in the store only, most of them. Because as what you said, it's hard to photograph and to post every one of them. Yeah, uh, and we bring them out to the shows, of course, whenever we do shows. Mm-hmm. But now that we're not doing tax expo, that really limits our exposure in Manila. We're, we're hoping to still stay with Prepper Bazaar. Mm-hmm. Um, we really like what Nico and crew is doing over there. And, of course, we'd rather support the community-driven shows more mm-hmm. than the profit-driven shows. Um, so, And it's always a great time at Prepper Bazaar. Lots of laughs, lots of, uh, lots of lies being told to everybody. It's fun. <laughs> Derek sometimes goes in different places hunting or looking for blades to buy. He goes to auctions. He goes to estate sales and he buys in trade shows. And I asked him about if he had bought something that he did not expect to be of much value and later on turned out to be of great value. Was there something that you picked up for cheap and then when you cleaned it up, it turned out to be one valuable uh, knife? Yeah, I don't have it here, but uh, we picked up, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it, our hog splitter. It's uh, about a meter long overall. I, I think I paid around 3,500 pesos for it at mm-hmm. a local flea market. Oh, no, no, back in Texas, okay. last time I was home. Um, I, I didn't know much about it at the time, and that's what got me interested in the, the hog splitters. And then come to find out it's about a 30,000 peso knife. Wow. Yeah, we, we got lucky. Um, honestly, just for scrap steel, it, it was worth three five. Um, but once we got it apart and uh, pulled off the... Somebody had tried to repair the handles on it and did a really bad job. So we had to strip all that off. And we found a maker's mark. And turns out to be a, a pretty expensive knife overall. Um, so that one's actually going to stay... We've had a number of people try to buy it from us. But <laughs> that one's going to stay in the shop as a display piece. You're collecting the vintage knives and going to shows, going to estate sales, and you buy and sell. How many, an estimate, is your personal collection that will not go on sale? Not talking about values, uh, uh, just, think, just the number. I think we're down in my personal collection to uh, non-Swiss Army knives, probably around 150 knives. Mm-hmm, wow. Maybe down to 100 knives total. Now it's got to be higher than that because I've still got fixed blades. So maybe around 100 pocket knives. Um, I think the last Prepper Bazaar, we sold off a bunch of my own personal collection. It's, it's just taking up way too much room. We had somewhere around 700 knives at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that was just too much. 700 knives? Yeah, somewhere plus or minus. More on the plus side, probably. <laughs> That's why I laugh in the groups when people say you can never have too many said, yes, yes, you can. There is a point. I found that point. But is there a knife that you have that at this point you will never, never sell? Like, it's an for you, it's going to be an heirloom or sentimental value. Looks like I don't have it here at the moment. But uh, one of the ones that, that I really would like to hand down to my daughter is um, it looks like a really cheap open elf. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an open L number seven. There's 
Uh, it's a stainless blade. It, mm -hmm. It's a new production. Oops, had it upside down. Um, this is actually taken from the El Hermione frigate that Lafayette sailed from France to America mm -hmm. in 1780. Um, they started refurbishing it a few years ago and building a second one, and this is oak off of that ship. Um, oh. This is the ship that brought French troops to the American shores to help us fight against uh, England during the Revolution. So this is actually a, a pretty big piece of history for us. Um, uh, Hermione is called the Frigate of Independence or the Freedom Frigate uh, because without the French help, we would have never won against the English during our revolution. So for me, this is actually a, oops, a pretty pretty nice piece to have, even though it's very plain Jane and there's mm -hmm. nothing special about it. Uh, it's just another piece of oak. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it is definitely a piece of American history, so we'll we'll hold on to that one for quite a while. But mm -hmm. uh, Openel being a French company, mm -hmm. um, the French still take great pride in the fact that they helped to establish the United States. Um, and the, the United States democracy is 100% based on the French system. And, and in turn, with the Philippine democracy being so heavily built on the United States, mm -hmm. it's... It, it's really interesting to see that democracy was born out of a handful of ideas in mm -hmm. France and traveled the world in such few years. Um, and the French take great pride in that. So for uh, Openel being a French company, they made a very big deal about being able to get their hands on the wood. And uh, they, uh, they released a certain amount in the U.S. and a certain amount in France. And mm -hmm. that was it worldwide. Um, and then they all come with a little certificate ah, saying that uh, they're guaranteed to come from that. And, of course, they're, each one is actually engraved with Serial the number. name of the ship on there. Plus, the oak isn't something Openel usually uses for their handles. It's it's too expensive compared to uh, to their normal beech wood. Mm -hmm. But it's not pretty enough to actually go into their their higher end lines. So that's a really unusual for them to, uh, material for them to work with. But going the opposite direction, another one that will, if I ever get rid of it, it'll take me a while. It's a Dario Soldatovic. Uh, he's out of Serbia, if I remember right. Mr. Hot Pockets over there nodding because I talked him into buying one too. Um, but this is his toucan flipper. We had it made with a low, low fold XHP Damascus steel. And then uh, I talked him into the first time he did a backspacer made from the same matching steel. And then mm -hmm. we did a matching pocket clip mm -hmm. and then orange peel uh, titanium with anodizing on it. Um, it. It's just a monster of a piece and it, it's absolutely beautiful in my opinion. Um, so going the opposite direction where we're going more artsy and more high end. Uh, this would be one that I'd like to hold on to for quite a long time, but who knows what the future holds for us. And that's just... Of course, uh, if you listen to my daughter, she'll never sell any of them. She <laughs> says they're all hers whenever I die. <laughs> During the interview, a friend asked about uh, his personal knife. Uh, Jason DeLeon showed us some lagual, lagoil, lagiol knives from France or from Italy and he asked how much the value of the blades are Jason was asking uh, about values 
of his knives kanina when when you were out. Jason, can you show Derek? Yeah. Sorry, Derek, you were I think you were the one who messaged me who who replied in my post before. Uh but I don't know the exact value. Um these were given to me by my friends. Do you know the value of these? I tried looking for it online, but I can't find any. The value on those uh, those particular knives is going to be really hard to establish um, because there are a lot of makers that are allowed to make that style. Um, so it can be a little bit difficult to pin it down. Um, however, if a, a great way to pin down values, especially on old knives, is to go on eBay and filter it by sold listings. And then it'll actually show you what the, the price that it sold at. Um, because we all know that, I, I mean, I can put this knife on eBay and ask for a million. But it doesn't mean that it's actually worth a million pesos. So if we go through the sold listings, it's a great way of establishing what the, the market value is right now on that knife. This one is not marked on here uh, since it's Damascus. Uh, usually they will mark who the importer was to if they exported it from France. Mm -hmm. There will be a mark on there about who the importer or export company was. And then a lot of times there will even be the company's name marked uh, down here on the blade. They'll all say Ligule, and that's the, the style and type of knife. Um, but really, they can be made anywhere in the world. There's a bunch coming from China right now uh, that the, the quality is really junk. And they sometimes try to pass it off as being actually French-made, uh, so that that's causing some problems as well. Balladio is making some, I think, out of Pakistan, mm -hmm. and uh, the quality on those aren't as great. But one of the ways to tell is that snap. That thing is loud, and uh, it will take off the tip of your finger if you are not careful with it. Um, those springs are very, very strong. One of the other things we want to look for is that B emblem in it. Yeah. Um, that's usually a sure sign that you're buying one from France. Uh, how do you take care of uh, those older, the vintage ones? Yeah, the older ones, the older knives. They're made of uh, carbon steel. They're made of uh, the scales usually are stag or usually are wood. General care tips. The stag can be a problem. It, stag and bone can both be a problem. They, they have a tendency to crack if there's too much of a moisture change for them. Uh, so if you go from a really humid outdoors site and then you bring it inside to your, your air-con room, you can have some swelling and cracking issues. Even this one, uh, it, it hasn't been brought out very much. But right behind this pin here, it, it's actually started to have a crack form. Um, it's kind of standard with these designs. One of the things you can do is get you a, a thicker CA cyanoacrylate glue, uh, a super glue, mm -hmm. um, and peel that crack apart just a little bit and put you a little in and press it together. And then, of course, come back and clean up any, any that's pressed out. But as far as maintaining the keeping it from cracking, it's going to be a little bit difficult to do. Wipe it down with an oil or a wax or some sort of cleaner that will help to keep some of the moisture inside of it. And then the steel just maintain like normal. I, I use some steel wool from Ace Hardware. 
Mm-hmm. And that you sing her oil and wipe it down and, and give it a light polish with the steel wool. And that'll take care of the surface rust and leave a little patina behind. I don't have any here, but Ren, uh, Renaissance Wax, uh, we sell it in the shop. Mm-hmm. It, it's really, really good at cleaning up bone and stag and even micarta. It'll clean micarta and then help to protect it. But when the bone, like when the bone or stag has dried out, how do you put moisture back in? Oils? That is going to be tricky, tricky. Because um, if you do it too fast, you're going to have swelling problems. And that's going to be a, a whole other issue to itself. You might start by slowly like put a coat of uh, linseed oil on it. Not boiled linseed oil, but just real linseed oil that takes weeks to cure. Um, you might try that. The other thing is to slowly bring it back into the humidity and, and let nature take its course. Mm. That's one of the problems we run nowadays. A lot of people run aircon 24-7, especially in their gear room, to try to keep down mold problems, with, especially if they have tents or tarps, and, and to try to keep down rust. And that can play havoc if you have a lot of natural materials in there as well. Because as that humidity drops, the, the natural materials are going to try to equalize the humidity. And that relative humidity is going to start forcing humidity out of the natural materials. And, and it'll start to shrink down on you. And if it shrinks down too much, you might get cracks or it, it'll just look really nasty. As a little boy, I always wanted to buy my own, but I wasn't allowed to or I didn't have money. Or I was only allowed to carry my Swiss Army knife. Mm-hmm. So now that I'm an adult, I spend way too much money trying to buy all the stuff I wanted <laughs> as a kid, I guess. But you're happy at the end. Uh, yeah, as long as I can hide it from my wife for a few months. <laughs> Problem is, is now she's starting to hang around the store. She knows how much this shit actually costs. <laughs> so so she would know how much it, she would sell it? Uh, for a lot of the stuff, yeah. Uh, she sees the value in the shop, um, and she sees how much we ask for certain stuff. And, and she figures that if I'm keeping it for myself, it must be even more valuable than what we sell in the store. She also understands that a lot of this stuff, everything that we sell in the store, we, we actually we use. Does your wife have her own knife? I'm, I'm assuming she has her own knife. Oh, yeah. She, uh, she's got quite a few. My problem is, is uh, she likes those Pakimaskis knives. Okay, it drives me up a wall. <laughs> she loves Pakistani Damascus knives because they're so pretty. Um, but you know, whatever makes her happy, I guess. Yeah, I'm just happy she wants to buy the thousand peso knives and not the ten thousand. <laughs> but yeah, uh, knives are part of our family very much. Um, we even had Shodi Pooler do this one uh, two Christmases ago for my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, the knife is a custom Swiss Army knife with a rounded tip on it. We had to bring in uh, a special model from Russia because that was the last place I could find that actually had it in stock with the scissors on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the winger style scissors uh, because they need to be able to work with the winger style uh, body. Uh, we put on it and then I had another friend Matt Peterson of Voodoo Resins he he made us some custom scales and I uh, had it all shipped over to Wacky and Wacky actually shaped the scales for me mm-hmm. um, and then we had Shodi Pooler do the custom leather holster for us mm-hmm. and uh, picked up an old Christmas edition um, Lumen Top tool from Lester Lampa 
And then uh, in the shop, we took scraps from the scale material and turned down a, a custom bead for it on the lathe. This really became a uh, an all-around project. I think we had five or six shops involved in total. And uh, it was really nice being able to see the community come together and get her a Christmas gift. My wife tells me I'm spoiling her. I, I tell her I'm investing in our retirement. Yes. I figure... Maybe uh, she'll have to date a rich man by the time she's old enough to date because she won't be able to accept the gifts. She'll be picky. But yeah, we, we all have our own knives. Uh, Jan Jan, my brother-in-law who works for us, he, he even started making some wooden knives for his sons so that they can have their own little EDC to carry around with them so that they can be like their daddy and Tito there. Now I've, I've seen you uh, making the scales. You're right. You're making the resin scales. Yeah, um, we we've gotten tired of selling other people's work and uh, watching Kershaw make all of the money and Buck and everybody else. And uh, we decided we're going to start our, our own production and we're starting with uh, resin scales first. Uh, and what we're hoping to do is, is come up with a couple of patterns that we can keep in house just for mm -hmm. ourselves. But we're going to start supplying with some of the other local makers, especially down in Cebu. Mm -hmm. uh, we've already sent them quite a few blocks to start testing and practicing on. So that they're ready to buy some, they'll, they'll have the confidence to spend the money on it. But then the next step will be you producing the blades itself. Yeah, we so we can actually put the scales on any knife that a customer wants. And uh, we're working with Don Don Dempus mm -hmm. and we're in talks with Miguel Renesas mm -hmm. and some other local makers, which, by the way, has always been our big push. We always wanted to work with local makers, but I'm, re I'm anal whenever it comes to quality control. And that was always kind of a big issue here is, mm -hmm. is makers are rushed because they're, they are living hand to mouth. And I understand that and they're pushing out as many pieces as they can. So we, we always kind of held off, but now the quality of workmanship's really stepping up locally. Uh, so we're trying to work with some of those local guys to start supplying us with blanks and we can start putting our handles on it. And of course, we can supply them as well. And that's what we really need is uh, we need uh, makers taking extreme pride, extreme ownership in their, their product. If you make and you don't feel a little anxiety that your customers are not happy, it might be time to consider changing professions because at the end of the day, we, we work for our customers and we need to make sure that every single one of those customers is happy with the product that they're receiving. So it's good to hear makers taking that step and, and taking that kind of responsibility and knowing that uh, they are beholden to their customers because their customers are are paying their bills. Their customers are putting food on their table. So it's nice hearing even small-time companies and small-time makers taking those steps to ensure that their bosses, their customers are getting the best product in. Derek, you have been in the knife community or the blade community or collecting, selling at the same time. What keeps you going, Derek? <laughs> no, no. Uh, what is your... Um, why are you passionate about this, the community? Part of it's self-serving for, for damn sure. I mean, uh, I've got a business in the community, so it is that, that increases my business. Uh, so I can't claim it's all just from the goodness of my heart. But uh, for the most part, I also like the people that are within the community. Um, as a foreigner, sometimes it can be hard to make adjustments whenever you move, especially if you're going all the way halfway across the world. Um, not that it's my first time, but 
so I, I kind of found a home within the community and, and made a lot of really good friends. So part of that plays into it. And, and uh, part of having your hands in something fresh and helping to develop it, guide it, grow it, and, and, and see it continue to improve, that's reward in itself by, you know, whenever we first got involved, there was six knife shops, five knife shops. And then uh, we kind of got started up and Chris got started up right around the exact same time. And, and Forge opened up, I think, like a month after we did. And last time I counted, we were at over the knife and emergency supply shops. And that's an amazing thing because especially in this country, we have to have that because we between typhoons and coronavirus and earthquakes and it's not a question of if we're going to need these supplies. It's a question of when are we going to need these supplies. And unfortunately, we can't always rely on the government. Even in America, we can't rely on the government to take care of us because that is a large operation with a lot of moving parts. And we we need help now. We don't need help in two weeks or three weeks. We need help now. And we have to be responsible to our own families and to ourselves to to be able to provide that help for ourselves and not wait for other people. Um, so that's been a big push in it. And a lot of it for me came from there's a, a lack of materials. There was a lack of knowledge. There was a lack of product on the local market whenever we first got started. And I know Chris felt the same way. Not a lot of the stuff that we wanted to be able to take care of our own family during times like this right now just wasn't available and that spurred a lot of it or if it was available they wanted three times the, the regular price and and that was just too much you know if we're always trying to rely on other people instead of ourselves uh especially as a married man with with a family to take care of and there's eight other people that that i'm responsible to and I, I don't know how I can look my daughter in the eyes and tell her I actually love her if I'm not also setting aside food and water every day and getting ready for things like this that we know is going to happen every single year. And especially for those of us that live out in the province and not inside of Manila, we know that whenever big things like coronavirus hit, we're going to be forgotten in favor of Manila and Cebu because that's where most people are at and that's where the seat is and, and that's where the power and the money is right now. The Philippines is really centered inside of Cebu. Why all of us are in this community to begin with and why so many of us have stepped up and tried to help develop the community and help grow the community. Thank you so much to Derek for giving us a time and giving us uh, your expertise on vintage knives and uh, how to take care and generally thank you for all the information that you've shared with us and thank you for everyone who listened thank you for putting it all on alan and there you have it our interview with mr derek manuel thank you for listening to pinoy passion podcast and i hope that you learned something today until our next episode bye bye